So let's start the Dhamma talk with the Namotasa. Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa So tonight I'm going to continue to talk about the bhojangas, the enlightenment factors. And as we have seen last Friday, there are seven enlightenment factors. They are the enlightenment factors of mindfulness, investigation of states, effort, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And we have seen that these bojangas, or the enlightenment factors, are considered to be medicine, medicine that is able to cure diseases, sickness, and the bojangas are able to, both, to cure both physical and mental diseases. And as we have seen, of course, the primary aim is to cure the mental disease, which are the numerous defilements in our minds. But as a nice side effect of developing the bojangas, also physical diseases uh, are cured uh, by developing the bojangas. And we have seen this comes about through the fact that most of our body uh, consists of so-called mind-produced matter. And so when the mind is in doubt, present in the mind, in the consciousness, so then the mind becomes extremely clear, pure and clean. And so then the mind-produced matter, the cells in the body, um, is also uh, very clear and uh, clean. Uh, physical matter cells and so in this way unhealthy cells sick cells decaying cells uh, they are then replaced by this mind produced new matter which is clear and clean and healthy or when there is no sickness present in the body then uh, when there is mind-produced matter, cells which are really clear, clean, healthy, that uh, prevents a new sickness from uh, coming up. So today we'll have a, first we'll have a look at the aspect of the bojangas being able to cure the mental uh, diseases. And as I just said, the mind is afflicted by the defilements. 
by the Kilesas. And so I'm going to mention a few examples which illustrate how the development of the Bojangas, the enlightenment factors, are able to uh, overcome the defilements, to cure the mental affliction. As I said, the primary aim of the Bojangas is to cure the mind from the defilements, from the kilesas. And the mental disease, the defilements, is actually to be much more feared than any uh, physical disease that we could be afflicted with. And by taking the medicine of the Bojangas, which means by uh, developing them in the course of meditation practice, many beings have been able to either uh, diminish the mental affliction, which means diminish, diminish and weaken the defilements, or they have also been able to uproot, completely destroy the defilements. And the complete destruction of all the defilements is uh, for liberation or enlightenment. And so now I'm going to tell the story of a deva called Subrahma. This deva lived in the deva realm of Tavatimsa. He lived in a huge mansion which was adorned with precious stones and around the house there were lovely gardens which had nice ponds and he had also the company of as it is said 1000 female devas uh, who took care of him so we could say that he lived in great luxury and uh, um, basically he had everything uh, at hand to enjoy his life. But then one night during the middle watch of the night, which is from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., so during this middle watch of the night, uh, Subrahma appeared uh, in the Chetavana monastery where the Buddha was residing. And Subrahma's face was red, tears were running down his face, uh, he was in great distress and uh, his knees were even shaking. And so seeing this Deva in this desperate state, the Buddha asked him what was uh, wrong with him or what had happened with him that he was in such a distressed uh, state. And so then Subrahma, this Deva, answered, Venerable Sir, you know today I went to the Nandana Grove to, uh, to have some amusement there. And I went there with my 1,000 female Devas. And so when we arrived in this garden, I sat down on a stone slab 
and th then 500 of these female devas they climbed up on the trees to pick flowers and so picking the flowers they dropped them and the 500 devas down on the ground they picked up these flowers and adorned my body uh, with these flowers that's what they would like to do adorn their bodies with flowers <laughs> and so they had a good time the devas were singing and um, uh, being very uh, merry but then didn't take too long no more flowers fell down from the trees and so then when Subrahma reflected what had happened and looked up while these devas the female devas on the trees had disappeared and reflecting what had happened he realized that due to an unwholesome karma in the past these 500 female devas had passed away and as it was an unwholesome karma they fell into Avicii hell which is the lowest uh, of the hell realms and so he realized that they were reborn there and were greatly suffering there and so with that realization uh, Subrahma was immediately overcome with worry and grief and he further reflected what would happen to him and the 500 remaining devas he could think well he still had 500 female devas so not so bad but reflecting what would happen to them he realized that he himself and the remaining 500 devas within or in seven days they also would pass away and they also would be reborn in Avicii hell where suffering is very intense and so uh, realizing that he Subrahma felt greatly distressed also there was the grief about the loss of the 500 devas that had already passed away and this great anxiety and fear of also the falling into the hell realm and so with that he lost all his interest in amusement and good food and drink which is always available to the devas and so he told the Buddha that yeah, his mind was greatly shaken and that he felt great distress and uh, experienced uh, intense fear so although Subrahma had been living quite a luxurious pleasant enjoyable life having the company of many female devas but with this incident uh, he could no longer be happy as you can see enjoyment enjoying uh, nice things food, drinks, entertainment, dances and songs 
can only be really enjoyed when one does not reflect on the dangers of aging, sickness, death, not reflecting on the dangers that await one in the lower realms and the dangers inherent in samsara. Usually it's through negligence uh, that people live yeah, a negligent life because they are not aware of these imminent dangers and so they indulge in sense pleasures and completely forget to perform wholesome meritorious deeds which is the only thing uh, which is really helpful and beneficial for uh, our lives in samsara or to get out of samsara. So because people usually do not reflect on these imminent dangers then when sickness or death or the loss of a beloved one happens people are grief-stricken, overcome with fear, anxiety, worry. And so it also was with Subrahma. He never gave it a thought uh, before and so now the loss of his 500 uh, dear female devas as well as the prospect of dying very soon uh, was a great shock and a great distress for him. And so his mind was greatly afflicted and he didn't know what to do any longer and also he just remembered that there was the Buddha and so with the hope that the Buddha would uh, be able to tell him how to overcome his great fear and anxiety he went to see the Buddha in the middle of the night and so after having told the Buddha his uh, dire situation he asked him to please tell him or teach him how to overcome the burning fires of the defilements and so the Buddha told him that he should take the medicine of the Bojangas which means to develop these seven enlightenment factors and further the Buddha told him to live a frugal life to restrain his senses and to make an effort to realize Nibbana so this advice of the Buddha was basically as if Subrahma wanted to overcome his mental affliction then the first and most effective thing was to take the medicine of the Bojangas to develop these seven factors of enlightenment and this includes that when one engages in this practice of meditation and developing these enlightenment factors there needs to be a basis of pure morality because without uh, pure morality it's very 
almost uh, impossible to develop these enlightenment factors. And based on my experience of teaching meditation retreats uh, for a number of years, I've come to see that so much of the mental distress that meditators go through, especially also in a meditation retreat, comes through immoral behavior or by uh, breaking any of the five precepts. For example, there's the precept of uh, sexual misconduct, to refrain from sexual misconduct, and because people uh, do not refrain from sexual misconduct and engage in sexual misconduct, a lot of distress, a lot of mental uh, anguish is caused through that. And in some cases where uh, women get uh, pregnant, then they even have to resort to an abortion, which then uh, involves uh, breaking another precept, namely killing a living being. And so this comes up in retreats, then these women are greatly distressed by the fact that they had to resort to kill a living being. And in some cases it not only happened once, but even twice. And so this can be uh, very distressing. The precept of killing living beings, usually it's not that people have uh, murdered another human being, uh, an adult, but uh, in one of his talks Joseph Goldstein mentioned that in his training in the Peace Corps they had to kill chickens and at that time he just did it because it was part of the training but later on when he was practicing meditation this came up uh, again and was distressing his mind precept of refraining from wrong speech is also something that when it's transgressed because of not telling the truth or uh, using speech that is greatly harmful or hurtful uh, to another person again can cause a lot of remorse coming up in a retreat stealing Usually it's not that people are overcome with worries because they have robbed a bank, um, but still taking what is not given uh, occurs and there are also some kind of grey zones where it's not so explicit, like for example making uh, copies in the office where we work because everybody else does it so why not doing it oneself, but you know, is it really allowed or not? And the last one, the fifth one, to refrain from taking intoxicants which can cloud the mind or cause the heedlessness. 
to drink some alcohol or take some intoxicating substances is not an unwholesome act in itself but it's one of the five basic precepts because if one drinks some alcohol or takes some drugs and then the mind becomes heedless uh, the danger to transgress any of the other uh, basic precepts is very big and there is this story of a Tibetan monk who was meditating up in the mountain somewhere living in a cave and there was this family who would uh, bring some supplies up to the cave every now and again and one time the family went up, they took their daughter and she was in her late teens and when the daughter met the monk she fell in love with him and so then uh, later on she went up to the cave uh, by herself all alone and so she told the monk that she loved him very much and uh, that uh, he should live with her but the monk said no 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 he didn't want to do that and the daughter was overcome with strong lust and so she implores the monk to have sex with him, her but the monk was firm and said no 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 way I'm not going to break my precepts uh, so the daughter was not very happy and went down to the village again and um, after a few days she went up to the cave again and this time she took a goat with her and so this time she told the monk that he should kill the goat so that they could have a big feast cook, cook some nice goat meat and again the monk said that he wouldn't do that because killing the living being was against his precepts she implored him further to do that but he didn't do it so then she was um, not happy about it again left went down to the village and after a few days she came up again to the cave this time, time carrying a jar of jung which is local beer and so again she implored the monk uh, to have some jung some beer with her and first the monk said no 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 and the daughter just kept imploring the monk and said you know just to have a little bit of beer that's not really uh, bad and you won't break any of your uh, major precepts and so finally the monk uh, gave in and thought yes having some beer that's not really uh, serious and it's just a um, minor precept I can make amends for that and so then he started to drink beer with the daughter and so then as the evening proceeded um, he had sex with her and then the, in the next morning he kills the goat and they had a big feast 
So this is the danger in um, just taking a little bit of alcohol or using some intoxicating substances. So in this advice of the Buddha to Subrahma, the Buddha gave precedence to taking the medicine of the Bojangas by developing the enlightenment factors. The Buddha uh, mentioned the medicine of the Bojangas first <coughs> and uh, gave it precedence because to cure the mental afflictions, the defilements, these enlightenment factors, the Bojangas, are the most effective and potent medicine to do so. And as the Buddha uh, was giving this advice to the Deva Subrahma, already listening to the Buddha, uh, his mind uh, calmed down, became uh, clearer, and actually by the end of the advice given by the Buddha, Subrahma uh, had become a Sotapanna, having reached the first stage of enlightenment. And so with that he experienced happiness in both mind and body. An example from our present age is Deepama, who overcame great mental afflictions and also uh, physical uh, affliction. I have mentioned the story of our life in one of my talks about 10 days ago. And so we have seen that at one time, was in her 50s, having lost children and her husband, and she was really sick, grief-stricken, and very desperate, facing death. And it was at that time that she started to practice meditation. And so then, after 30 years of looking uh, for freedom, she finally caught a glimpse of that sorrowless state of Nibbana, meaning she reached the first stage of enlightenment. And with that experience, her uh, high blood pressure returned to normal and also her heart palpitations uh, stopped. And as you have seen, then she continued with her practice and after her second or during her second intensive retreat, she attained the second stage of enlightenment, became a Sakadagami. And again, with this uh, realization, her uh, physical health further improved, uh, not to speak of her mental health. So, within a short time, a big transformation had taken place in Deepama, and from being uh, grief-stricken, desperate, sick woman, she became a radiant, healthy, independent woman. So, 
Diploma is an excellent example that illustrates that when the Bojangas, the factors of enlightenment, are uh, strongly developed, it brings about uh, transformation in the mind and the byproduct of that, that also uh, heals the, the physical part, like the body. Another example, a person who is still living, is a Burmese woman I know. And since she was young, she was quite uh, short-tempered and she had these bouts of uh, anger. And having these attacks of getting angry and really quite angry, then that always led to uh, heart palpitations. And when that happened, it was so strong that for two or three days she had to stay in bed. And she was a meditator, um, meditating, and then at one stage she had a major breakthrough in her meditation practice, meaning she reached the first stage of enlightenment, became Sotapanna, and with that her anger attacks, attacks greatly uh, diminished or reduced and sometimes it was just kind of uh, slight irritations or ill will. And because she did not have these bouts of anger any longer, she did not get the heart palpitations any longer. So they completely stopped. So now we will go to the actual uh, factors of enlightenment and look at them in regard to their characteristics, their functions, their manifestations and their approximate causes. And we'll start with the first one with Sati Sambojanga, which is the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. Applied to our life in general, Sati Sambojanga means to be mindful all the time, to be present mindful during all our waking hours. And Sati also means to remember to perform wholesome deeds related to the practices of dana, sila and bhavana, wholesome deeds related to the practices of generosity, ethical conduct and meditation. Because dana, sila, bhavana, these are the three bases of meritorious deeds as taught by the Buddha. Sati Sambhojanga, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, is a very important one. This factor is quite vital uh, in our lives and especially in our meditation practice. It is said that 
a person without sati, without mindfulness, is like a corpse. And Sayadaw Ujanaka, my teacher, in one of his talks uh, he gave to us foreign meditators, um, he said, yeah, a meditator without mindfulness is like a dead person, like a corpse. And then he said, so if a meditator is not mindfully eating his meal, then there is a dead meditator sitting at the table and eating his meal. <laughs> and he liked this, uh, this image because then when he was uh, mentioning it, he kind of wa was chuckling, ha 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 ha. Or saying, then if a meditator is not mindfully walking back to his or her room, then there is a dead meditator, a corpse, <laughs> walking back to the room. And for a meditator, Satisambhojanga means to observe and be mindful of all the different objects which arise in the body and mind during our meditation practice. And so these objects include all physical uh, experiences uh, related to the body, they include all feelings, all mind states and all uh, dhammas or uh, mind objects. Or stated simply, mindfulness uh, means all phenomena that are arising in the body and mind must be observed as they really are from moment to moment. Sāti-sambhojāṅga, the mindfulness factor, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is the most important factor among these seven factors of enlightenment. Sati mindfulness is the fundamental basis for our meditation practice and so it becomes the most basic factor for awakening because if this factor is not present then all the other uh, enlightenment factors cannot arise. So mindfulness has this quality of being present and of being aware of what is going on in us and around us from moment to moment. So when awareness, mindfulness is present, then whatever is known and perceived can be understood in its true nature. Mindfulness can be applied to everything and being mindful of anything can lead to insight, understanding and wisdom. But there must be a willingness to see everything and take everything, take every situation as a teaching. So in this light, the whole world is actually teaching us the Dhamma. 
we can divide the whole world into two categories like we have the animate world which includes all being, beings such as human beings, animals, devas, petas and so on and then we have the inanimate world these are thing, inanimate things like trees, rocks, mountains, rivers uh, and so on and so the inanimate world and the animate world are teaching us the Dharma all the time everywhere, it's omnipresent so for example human beings and other beings as well they constitute the so-called animate world they are dying uh, all the time before our very eyes and also when we read a newspaper the obituary notices remind us constantly, daily of our own mortality and so do the people dying around us all the time remind us of our own mortality people are dying all the time and uh, again in the newspapers we can re either read people dying uh, from natural disasters floods and hurricanes and forest fires and so on or people dying because of wars armed conflicts so the fact that we can die at any time any, at any age is a Dhamma teaching for us all it's like all these dying people or uh, dying beings are saying to us look just as we are dying so are you going to die one day and so in this way the animate world is teaching us the Dhamma constantly also the inanimate world with its trees and mountains, rivers, lakes, rocks sun and moon and stars and so on is also constantly teaching the Dhamma for example when leaves from a tree fall down to the earth or petals of a flower fall down to the ground it's like these leaves or the petals are saying look we fall down we disappear we disintegrate we die and you also are going to fall down you are going to disintegrate you are going to die they show us the impermanent nature arising and passing away or disappearing and so in this way inanimate things are also constantly teaching us the Dhamma but usually human beings are not aware of these teachings they do not see them, they do not understand them 
because they lack mindfulness. The day people become mindful, then these things will become obvious and then they will see how everything out in the world is teaching us the Dharma constantly. And so when mindfulness arises, when there is awareness, so then such a simple thing of seeing leaves falling down from a tree or a flower withering could lead to a sense of urgency, realizing one's own uh, impermanence. Venerable Patachara was a nun at the time of the Buddha. I've mentioned her before, she was the one who not only lost her, lost her two kids and husband, but also her parents and brother, and so she went mad. And it was with a kind and compassionate uh, talk from the Buddha that she regained her, her mindfulness. And so then she became a nun, she ordained as a bhikkhuni. And it is said that she became fully enlightened as she was observing the extinguishing of her oil lamp. Like one uh, evening uh, she returned uh, to her room and not going to bed yet she sat down uh, for some more meditation and she had an oil lamp and to extinguish the oil lamp she had to take a pin to pull out the wick. And as she did that very mindfully, very carefully, in that moment, pulling out the wick when the oil lamp and the flame was extinguished, uh, it was in that moment that all her defilements were extinguished. In other words, in that moment she became an arahant. So now let's go to the characteristic of mindfulness. So this enlightenment factor of mindfulness has the characteristic of not wobbling or not floating away from the object or in other words the characteristic of sinking into the object. And when mindfulness sinks into the object then uh, it's not superficial so it's also the characteristic of non-superficiality and the classic simile uh, for this is when a stone is thrown into a pond into the water then the stone, stone immediately sinks down to the ground and rests there. And so likewise, when mindfulness is strong, when it is present, it sinks into the object. However, when a dried pumpkin is thrown into the water, into the pond, then this dried pumpkin does not sink down to the ground, but it stays on the surface and it floats 
um, on the surface, wobbling there uh, with on the waves. And so, likewise, when the mind is devoid of mindfulness, then it does not sink into the object, but it stays on the surface, and so then the mind is wobbling. And mindfulness also includes to remember to stay present, to remember to be aware. And this means not to be forgetful. When we're not forgetful, then we remember. And so for a meditator, uh, mindfulness means that all objects arising in the body and mind can be observed continuously without missing a single one. And this is like a heron that is able to catch every fish that jumps out of the water. You may have seen a heron standing uh, in shallow water and waiting for the fish to jump out. And so then when a fish jumps out of the water, the heron immediately catches uh, the fish without missing it. And so the characteristic of mindfulness is similar in that, that it catches uh, each object without missing it. Then the function of mindfulness, of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, is non-forgetfulness, or function is the absence of confusion. It's also described as not losing the object out of view. So the basic function of mindfulness is not to be forgetful. And in a very general sense, whatever work needs to be, do needs to be done, whatever duty needs to be carried out, mindfulness does not forget, forget it. And in a very general sense, this is applied to worldly matters such as studies and education, business or family and other worldly matters. So while attending to these different matters or duties, then it is the function of mindfulness not to forget anything, to carry out everything that needs to be carried out. But this form of mindfulness is neither mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment, nor is it necessarily a wholesome mental state. This form of mindfulness is merely an imitation of mindfulness. And in the scriptures in Pali, uh, this is called Sati Pati Rupaka. So only the mindfulness involved in performing wholesome or meritorious deeds, such 
states connected to generosity, morality, or meditation. So only these kinds of deeds related to the three bases of meritorious deeds is a wholesome form of mindfulness. But still, this form of mindfulness is not yet mindfulness as an enlightenment factor. Only that kind of mindfulness which is aware of the arising and passing away of mental and physical phenomena is considered to be mindfulness as an enlightenment factor. Only this kind of mindfulness which sees the constant arising and passing away of phenomena is um, the genuine Sati Sambhojanga, enlightenment factor of mindfulness. And as we have seen, it's in the fourth stage of insight knowledge that the meditators clearly come to see the arising and passing away of mental and physical phenomena. So the true mindful enlightenment factor of mindfulness arises only uh, in this fourth uh, stage of insight knowledge. So a meditator should be endowed with this kind of mindfulness, namely mindfulness as an enlightenment factor. And when this kind of mindfulness becomes strong and penetrating, then the meditator can be aware of the constant arising and passing away of each um, phenomena or object in the body and mind. And once this level of mindfulness has been reached, it gathers quite some momentum. And so observing phenomena as they arise and disappear becomes quite effortless. And this happens, or this is so, because the mind is really interested in what is going on in this body and mind. And because of this interest, the effort that is needed to observe this uh, phenomena is aroused quite naturally. So when a meditator's mindfulness becomes really sharp and penetrating, then there is awareness of every arising object. If an itchiness, cold or heat arise while observing the rising and falling movement of the belly, then mindfulness is immediately aware of that itch or uh, sensation of heat or cold and so is able to observe it without missing it. And even the blinking of the eye or the swallowing of saliva can be clearly observed without missing any of those. So whatever arises in the body and mind, mindfulness is constant and uninterrupted and is able to catch uh, each uh, object like the heron 
which is able to catch eight little fish jumping out of the water. But this kind of constant, uninterrupted and sharp mindfulness takes some time to develop, usually at the beginning of a retreat or for beginners uh, it's not yet there. So it needs uh, practice and it needs days and weeks to develop this kind of strong and penetrating mindfulness. Then the manifestation of mindfulness. Mindfulness, when it's uh, developed and strong, it manifests as a protection of the mind. It also manifests as confrontation. So the first uh, manifestation of protection is like the role of a nanny who has to uh, take care of a little child. So the nanny has to be constantly on the watch to see that the little child is uh, not going too close to the stairs because uh, she could fall down. The nanny has to watch out that this little kid doesn't uh, grab let's say pebbles or sticks outside the garden and eats it. So the nanny has this role of protecting the, the little child. And likewise mindfulness uh, protects the mind from unwholesome mental states. Mindfulness guards the mind from the kilesas, the defilements. So mindfulness has to be on the guard, it has to protect the mind from the defilements that could arise when seeing uh, a visible object, for example. And the same applies to the other objects of sounds, smells, tastes, touching sensations and uh, thoughts. So for meditators who are experienced and whose mindfulness uh, has become quite strong and uninterrupted, then this form or this manifestation of protection uh, becomes quite obvious. So if greed or anger arises when seeing a visible object, then the mind, mindfulness immediately becomes aware of that greed or anger and so with strong mindfulness this greed or anger uh, immediately dissolves and disappears and so mindfulness protects the mind from the evil influence of the defilements and so mindfulness becomes uh, very precious as it acts as a good guard or protection against the evil influence of the defilements.
another level of protection comes about when mindfulness is so good that greed or anger have not even a chance to arise when seeing a visible object or any other object. So when one is very vigilant and try, uh, when mindfulness becomes mm, uninterrupted, then when one uh, sees an object that usually gives rise to greed or anger to arise, then with that strong mindfulness this greed or anger does not even have a chance uh, to arise. So if all, if each object could be observed in this way, then the defilements would be prevented from arising. And having no more defilements arising in one's mind, that means these defilements do not have any harmful or detrimental effects. And so they do not arise anymore. And so this kind of protection uh, of the protection of the mind from the defilements this is a immediate and precious benefit that one can gain uh, from developing mindfulness in one's meditation practice the second manifestation of mindfulness is that of confrontation or coming face to face with the object. So when mindfulness is strong and powerful then when an object arises then the meditator's mind is immediately face to face with this object. There is this confrontation And it said this is like a little bird that always turns its head to the direction where it, it picks, uh, the picks up the food. And so likewise mindfulness always faces the object, always uh, comes face to face with the object. And so it can uh, catch and observe the object. And lastly, the proximate cause for mindfulness. In the Pali scriptures, uh, only one proximate cause for mindfulness is mentioned. And this is to frequently give careful attention. Attention, the Pali word is manasikara, this is like the rudder of a ship who gives it uh, its direction or the rudder of a ship which uh, directs the ship to its destination or expressed a bit differently attention, manasikara is that mental factor which is responsible for the mind's advertence to the object So with wise 
attention, we remember to constantly be mindful without missing any object. And it is our intention to be aware of every object during walking, sitting, standing or lying down, or being aware of each object while eating, uh, drinking, bending or stretching uh, our arms. So we need this attention and it is said that without wise attention this enlightenment factor of mindfulness would not arise. So for meditators who practice superficially and unconsciously then Sambhojanga has no chance to arise. In the commentary for this enlightenment factor of mindfulness to arise, four proximate causes are mentioned. And they are the first being mindfulness and clear comprehension. The second one is to avoid unmindful persons. The third one, to associate with mindful persons. And the fourth one is to incline the mind to arouse the enlightenment factor of mindfulness. So the first of these four causes mentioned in the commentary says mindfulness and clear comprehension. So on the one hand it means that one moment of mindfulness is the cause for a next moment of mindfulness to arise. And on the other hand, it means that we also need clear comprehension regarding the actions we perform. And we should especially be aware of their uh, purpose, the purpose of the action, and the suitability of the action. So, for example, if the purpose is to drink some water because you are thirsty, then to stretch out the arm to get the water bottle is, is a good purpose. But if you stretch out the arm uh, to get some more lollies, to get some more sweets because you greedily want them, then the purpose of stretching out the arm uh, is not really uh, wholesome. Or regarding the suitability of an action. So if you finish the sitting meditation and reach out the arm to get our water bottle and drink some water, so then that action would be considered to be suitable. But if we reach for the water bottle during our sitting meditation, uh, this wouldn't be regarded as suitable unless uh, we were going, we were about to go, uh, going to die because of dehydration. But up here in the mountains and uh, with this climate, that's not very likely.
So then the next two causes to avoid unmindful persons and to associate with mindful persons is actually quite an important uh, factor, important causes, because other people's behavior has quite a big impact on uh, an influence on us and most of the time this happens actually on an unconscious level. Many years ago in the forest center in Burma we had an Australian meditator who had been there for quite some time already and somehow he was getting stuck in his practice and Sayadaw Oindaka repeatedly urged him to slow down more in his daily activities but somehow this meditator just could not do it or was not willing to do it and then a new foreign meditator arrived and he had he was an experienced meditator and he started to slow down right from the beginning when he got into the, the retreat and this new meditator was sitting at the same table in the dining hall and as this new meditator soon was slower than this other uh, Australian meditator somehow this uh, slow meditator exercised a good influence on this Australian meditator and with that somehow then it was possible for him to slow down more in his uh, daily activities and it was then that um, he got out of being stuck or then his practice uh, uh, developed more smoothly and the last of this factor is to incline the mind to arouse the enlightenment factor of mindfulness so this simply means that we direct our mind into this direction or that there is this um, attitude or inner willingness to work towards uh, this arousing of the, mind, of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness so let me end this talk with a quote from Deepa Ma the whole path of mindfulness is this whatever you are doing be aware of it so may, of, may all of you be able to develop uninterrupted and penetrating mindfulness based on this mindfulness may the other enlightenment factors arise and become powerful and strong May your practice culminate in the ultimate happiness and peace of Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.